This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This morning we want to return again to the book of Exodus, uh, to chapter 3 this time. Uh, This is where we were last Sunday morning and last Sunday evening. And we're doing a short series on the the life of Moses, the man of God. And uh, we finished actually last Sunday evening at the very last verse in chapter 2. And we're going to begin in a moment in the first verse of chapter 3. Now there are 40 years between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And we said last uh, Sunday evening where we ended with Moses in Midian. And he married a a priest of Midian, Jethro. He married his daughter, Zipporah. And they had two children, Gershom and Eliezer. And uh, we said how he got there. And uh, without getting into all of the previous two, uh, sufficient to say, of course, uh, that God had raised Moses up to be the deliverer of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt and how that the first 40 years of his life he spent in the palace of the princess of Egypt. And we remember how that his, his mother and father, by faith, how they made that little wonderful ark, that little basket, and positioned it particularly so that in the morning whenever uh, the princess would be that she would see the child, and she did and take that child, had compassion on that little child uh, to be her own son. And how the first three to five years, uh, his own mother had the privilege of nursing and getting paid to look after her own son and then hand it over to the princess. And during that 40 years, uh, we understood, of course, that just prior to Moses being born, that there was a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Uh, Joseph was the one away at the very beginning, hundreds of years before this, Uh, who came into Egypt as a slave, and he rose up to be the prime minister of Egypt, and through that saved the whole Egyptian nation from starvation, and also the Hebrew people, his own people, his own family, uh, his father Jacob and his brothers who had uh, betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And how that uh, through his forgiveness and his mercy, he brought them to Egypt, to the land of Goshen, to dwell there, and there was about 70 or so of them, the whole extended family. And over that period of hundreds of years, in fact, by the time Moses was born, they'd been there 320 years and how that uh, they had risen from 70 or so to about 2 million people. And this Pharaoh who knew not Joseph when he rose up, he saw them as a threat to his nation and began to afflict them and turned uh, uh, where they were staying into a ghetto and made them slave laborers to build his cities. And uh, they were very brutal. They lashed them. They beat them. They were awful to them. But Moses all that time is growing up as, the, as a prince in Egypt in the palace. But because of what his mother had put into him as a boy, he always remembered that he was a Hebrew at heart. And over a period of time, it obviously was troubling him that the Egyptians were afflicting his people, the Hebrews. And it got to the stage when he was 40 years old, he decided enough was enough, uh, that he was the one that he knew by then he was called to be the deliverer. He could not take it anymore, the beatings the people was getting. So he 
he decided he would no longer be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he left the palace to go to live in the ghetto. Now, understand that he felt at that time that he certainly was called of God to be their deliverer. And so that right away, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he killed that Egyptian and buried him in the sand, thinking nobody had saw him. But the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting. He tried to intervene, and they says, well, who made you a judge and ruler over us? And are you going to bury us, kill us, and bury us the way you did the Egyptian? And so suddenly he realized that he had been spotted, and then Pharaoh heard that, and Pharaoh wanted to kill him. So he ran for his life, and he ran to Midian. Now, the Midianites, you may be interested to know, in Genesis 25, uh, that uh, Abraham's second wife, Keturah, uh, that he, she gave him six sons, and one of them was called Midian. And from that then became the Midianites. And so he flew, he flew, he was on, he was on, uh, he went to Midian, and when he was there, uh, he met uh, Jethro's uh, daughters, and ended up uh, marrying one of them, had two children, as we say, and for the next 40 years, that's where he spent his life, in the backside of the desert, looking after his father-in-law's sheep. All right, so that's a little synopsis to bring us to where we are today. Now, here he is, and it says at the end of chapter 2, uh, in verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked down upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And so after 40 years, it was now time for God to move again and time for God to begin to uh, use Moses in the role that he had called him to right from even his birth. And even before his birth, he was called to be the deliverer. But try to imagine what it must have been like during that 40 years. Because when he left Egypt, he must have felt a complete and utter failure. He must have felt, God, I thought I was in your will. I thought I was doing your will. I believed that you had called me to be the deliverer. And I went there and I tried my best. But you see what happened. And, and even the Hebrew people didn't believe me. They didn't want me. And I stood up for them. And I fair wanted to kill me. And I had to run. And so in his mind, he must have been thinking, God, I missed it. I have blown it. There is no possible way that I could ever be that deliverer that I thought I was and I believe that you called me to be. But how many know that God is a God of a second chance? Amen. And for sure he had failed. For sure he had used the arm of flesh because remember he was a prince in Egypt and he, he, he obviously felt that he was well equipped to be the deliverer of the Hebrews. He was smart. He was clever. He was a man of languages. He was a diplomat. He must have met foreign dignitaries all the time. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that he led the Egyptian army against the Ethiopians and won a great battle against them. So he was a mighty warrior. He had all the, we could say in the natural, all the credentials to be the deliverer, but that was his problem. When he wanted to deliver, he just used the arm of flesh. He killed an Egyptian. God didn't tell him to kill the Egyptian, but he took it upon himself to do this. So he was completely in the flesh, and that's why at that point his whole ministry, the whole vision 
it all seemed to fail at that point, and he had to run for his life. And after 40 long years, now he's 80 years old now, and 40 years has passed, and nothing has happened other than him out in the backside of the desert with the sheep. We read nowhere where God spoke to him. He didn't have any dreams or visions, nothing. He's just there, probably feeling, maybe, maybe had given up, maybe wasn't even thinking about it any longer. Maybe feeling, well, that's it, it's over, it's done, it's finished, I missed it, I've blown it, it'll never come back. I know what's going to happen to the Hebrew people, my people, I can't do anything about it. I'm an old man now, I'm only a shepherd, what can I do? And that's where God comes in. And so let's begin reading from verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Now this is what theologians call a theophany. This is God appearing to someone in the Old Testament. Not that God was the burning bush, but that he used that in a form to appear to Moses to speak directly to him. And so he comes and he sees a burning bush. No doubt he had seen other bushes burn in 40 years. The lightning strikes and so forth. This happens. I remember one time Clifford and I, and maybe it was Johnny, I'm not sure, we were in the Ukraine. We were uh, in, a way in a village church and we were making our way home that night to Odessa and Ismail. And we, we saw fires here and there. And we saw lightning. And so they told us these were lightning strikes. And because the ground was like tender, when the lightning hit, then there's flames that burst up and there's fires that burn. So no doubt he had saw that before. There was a million bushes out in, out in the Midian Desert. But nevertheless, there was something about this bush that was different because he watched it and it was not consumed. It was burning, but it was not consumed. Now, anyone who's a Presbyterian knows that the burning bush is their great uh, motif in their letter headings and outside in their church doors. And uh, the burning bush is obviously taken from Exodus chapter 3. And the motto, the Latin motto underneath, Ardennes said, Varens means burning but flourishing. Burning but flourishing. And that's the Presbyterian Church in Ireland's great uh, sign. And so that's where they got it from. And so Moses sees this bush burning but it's not burnt out. And God is going to put a fire into this man that will never go out again. He had lost his fire. It seemed to be he had lost that passion and that drive and that vision and that anointing and that calling. It seemed to be all of that was gone. But God was going to put a fire in him now that would never go out that God was going to use him in a wonderful and mighty way. Wouldn't it be wonderful of all of our Christian lives that we had the fire of God and we would never burn out? Sometimes people burn out, particularly in ministry, you get burnt out. People say, I would get burnt out because of stuff that happens. But would to God that we would burn on, not burn out, and that we would keep flourishing in the midst of it. And so... He saw this bush burning with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Verse 3, Then Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. 
Note this verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look. So that's implying that God was waiting to see if he would turn aside and look. You know, sometimes God can come to us in unfamiliar ways. Ways perhaps that we were not looking for, we're not used to. And he does something a little bit odd and unfamiliar to us. And we may think, well, that's just my thoughts, or that's just me, or that's just a coincidence, that's just an odd thing, and, and pay no attention to it. And Moses could have done that. He's 80 years old. He could have thought, you know what? I've been out in the sun too long. I've been wondering about this whole wilderness far too long, seeing things. That can't be real. That can't be right, and walked off. But he didn't. He turned aside. And when he turned aside to see this, God says, I've got his attention. I've got his attention. And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. <laughs> as nonchalant as you like, as if this was an everyday occurrence now. Here I am. <laughs> it's always good, you know, if God speaks that we say, here I am, Lord. And notice that he says, Moses, Moses. Really wanting to get his attention really wanted to speak to him. And it's interesting that throughout Scripture, how many times that God uses that, where he speaks somebody's name twice. You remember Abraham who went up the mountain under God's command to slay his son as an offering unto God. And how that he believed that even if he did that, that God would raise him from the dead to fulfill that promise he gave him in his son. And how when he raised that knife and he went to plunge that knife into his son's chest, that God says, Abraham, Abraham, to stop him in his tracks. Remember little Samuel growing up as a little boy in the temple as Eli's helper. And how God spoke to him in the middle of the night and says, Samuel, Samuel. Spoke to him twice like that. Or how that Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha says, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered of much serving, but this thing is needful, the part that Mary has chosen. Or how that Saul of Tarsus in the road to Damascus, and how Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, he always used that term when Simon was at his weakest. Peter was a rock. Simon was like a reed. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. Even Jesus on the cross, we preached that a few weeks ago, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when God says something twice, he's really, really trying to get somebody's attention. Moses says, here I am. Then he says, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. <clears throat> the sandals on the feet, of course, would be all the dust and the dirt and the grime of the desert. His feet would be defiled. And God was saying here, Moses, when you come before me, don't come with defilement on you. I'm a holy God. And God is a holy God. And we should not approach a holy God defiled, except unless we're asking for cleansing and forgiveness. 
but we shouldn't just come into God's presence with defilement and expect God not to see that or to know that or not be upset with that. He was saying to Moses, Moses, when you approach me, make sure you're not defiled. Take your sandals off your feet. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, those were three great worthies of the Old Testament. Uh, three of the heroes of faith that's mentioned in Hebrews 11. But remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a man who feels an absolute failure. Somebody who feels he has missed God, that he has blown it, that it's over for him, that his mistake is too great, it's too big for God ever to overcome and to use him again. But the three that God mentions, even though they were great worthies, and even though they were mentioned in their old book of faith in Hebrews 11, but Abraham lied about his wife. And Isaac, his son, did the same thing. He lied about his wife. And Jacob cheated his brother out of the birthright. So on their CVs, they had big failures. But yet God used them in spite of that. Amen. And it's encouraging Moses. Moses, I'm the same God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at their lives. Look what happened. Look how I used them in spite of their failures and their mistakes. I still used them. And we need to remember that too. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. And maybe today, maybe you feel you've blown it. Maybe you feel that it's all over as far as your dream or your vision or what you felt God wanted you to do. Or, or maybe just some desire you had and it's gone. The moment's passed. The opportunity is gone. You know, the man of my dreams, the woman of my dreams, I'll never get them now. I'm getting too old and things have changed and my life's moved on and that's never going to happen. Never get that business off the ground. Or You know, there's a dozen things you can think about. But God is the God of a second chance. And the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Hebrew believed that if he saw the face of God, you would die. So he had his face. In case God's face would appear and he would die. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which, they, which the Egyptians oppressed them. And at that moment, that must, have been, that must have been music to Moses' ears. Because when he left his people, they were being horribly and brutally oppressed. And now another 40 years has passed, and they're still being horribly, brutally oppressed. But God is coming and saying, Moses, I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to bring them out. The time for that is over. I'm going to move. And Moses must have thought, well, that's wonderful. At last, my people will be set free. But then in verse 10, God says, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh 
that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. <laughs> that must have been the biggest shock of his life. <laughs> it's one thing for God to say, I'm going to deliver those people. I'm going to set them free. I'm going to bring them out of there. Now he's saying, but you're going to do it. I've called you to do this. You're going to go there. You're going to do this on my behalf. That must have been a big shock to him. He's 80 years old, for pity's sake. He's 80 years old. He's an old, old man. He hasn't been in Egypt for 40 years. He hasn't seen the Hebrews for 40 years. He's seen nobody on his sheep in the desert. But it's not over. In fact, for Moses, it was just beginning. The famous D.L. Moody said about the three stages in Moses' life for the first 40 years. He felt he was a somebody. For the next 40 years, he felt he was a nobody. For the last 40, he felt this is what God can do with a nobody. <laughs> and God was about to show him what he can do with a nobody. Hallelujah. So God's the God of a second chance. But here's the reluctant deliverer. <laughs> but Moses said to God... Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God, who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. Look at me. I'm a shepherd. I'm a lowly shepherd in the desert. I've got nothing. I used to be a prince, but that was, seems a lifetime ago. But today, Lord, I'm nothing. Useless, hopeless, nothing. That's how he felt. But that's not how God saw him. God saw him as a deliverer. God looked at Gideon and said, you're a mighty man of faith. Me? <laughs> Me, God? Hiding from the, the enemies? Hammering out this little bit of corn? Me? Yes, you. I wonder how God sees you today. If you feel an utter failure, or you've missed it, or you never can, this can never happen. I wonder how God sees it. And Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? First Corinthians 1, Paul talks about God bringing to naught the things that are. And who does he use? Those who are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Those who are not. Those who feed their nothing. Those are the ones that God can use. Because when he uses them, he gets the glory. So, verse 12, God said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, Moses, here's the thing. Regardless of how you feel about yourself, I'm going to be with you. And when I'm with you, that will make all the difference. This will happen because I'm with you. Not because of your ability or lack of it, but because I'm with you. And when I'm with you, then... It will happen. Later on, you know, Moses at one point, way, way later on, Moses at one point says, Lord, I will not go up unless your presence goes with me. I need your presence with me. And God's promising it here. In fact, he says, when you do this and come through this, you'll come to this mountain and you'll serve me here. And you'll look back and say, God, do you know what? 
exactly as you said. Just as you promised, it's all come true. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, I come when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? It's not that they didn't know God's name, but Moses is saying, more, God, God said, What does your name really mean? What's behind your name? Because they're going to want to know. Uh, you know, I'm going to go in your name, not my name, in your name. And they're going to say, Well, but what does it mean? What's behind it? Where's the authority? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you, sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. I am that I am. Some translations, I am who I am. Now let me just briefly touch on this. Early written Hebrew had no vowels, only consonants. And the consonants that make up that statement, I am who I am, is Yod, He, Wa, He. Y-H-W-H is the four letters. And scholars call that the tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton is four letters. And the Jews, even to this day, will not pronounce that holy name of God. They have substituted with Adonai, which means Lord. And later on, in written Hebrew, then vowel points was added to the consonants, little dots above and little lines below to make it sound like a vowel. And out of that, we believe, scholars believe that the terms Yahweh or Jehovah came uh, through that, and often that's what's used as well. And so then when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek. Uh, the Septuagint, there were 70 scholars that did that. The word curious, Lord, was substituted. So you'll see Lord used a lot, particularly in the New Testament. And so Jews to this day, even in their synagogues, will not say that holy, holy name of God. They, they're scared of taking the Lord's name in vain. And so they'll substitute that for Adonai, which they can't say. And so this is a mighty name. And we talked just a couple of weeks ago, but even mentioning that phrase, how that it's the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. God is the most high God. He's above all. He's over all. But he's eminent. He's close. He's near. He's with us. And so God's showing Moses, hey, listen, I am the mighty God. They knew him as El Shaddai, the Almighty. I am the mighty God. I'm the holy God. I'm the transcendent God. I'm the eminent God. I'm the God who's away above all of this, but I'm the God who's close to you. 
And so it goes on there in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I, have, and I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go the three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Israel will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in their midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give you this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go out that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Hallelujah. All those years of slavery, of hard labor without pay, God's saying, I'm going to make all that up to you. Amen. I'm going to give you gold and silver and jewels in abundance. Now, God had another reason for that, by the way, because there's going to be a tabernacle built in the wilderness, and there'll be gold and silver and precious stones used in that. But he didn't tell them that at this time. What a blessing that was going to be. And so this God, I am who I am, is going to be with him, and his presence is going to be continually with him. Jesus, you know, was very fond of using that term, the I ams, isn't he? I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the light of life. I am the good shepherd, and so forth. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful name. Then Moses answered... After all of that, Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. You can see here that Moses is so reluctant to do this. And God is helping him and trying to confirm to him and trying to encourage him. I'm going to be with you. You can use my name. Listen, you're going to take them out. It's going to happen. But he's keeping looking for a reason why it can't happen or he shouldn't be the one it's going to happen through. And sometimes when the call of God comes on our lives, sometimes we make all kinds of excuses not to do it. Lord, who am I? I can't do this. I'm just me. What do you see in me? But God can use those who are available to him to use. So, suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So in other words, prove it. You say the Lord has appeared to you? Okay, prove it. I want to see the proof, the evidence. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. My shepherd's rod. He said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Serpent was one of the great symbols of the Egypt of its power, particularly a cobra, poisonous, deadly. And Moses had already fled from Egypt 40 years before this, 
And here's this symbol of Egypt riding at his feet. What does he do? He flees again. But the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. You normally don't grab snakes by the tail. You see all those wildlife uh, programs. They try to get it by the back of the neck, hold the bite and then. You hold the tail, the bite and then it's free, isn't it? So God's saying, face your fears here, Moses. Face your fears. Grab it by the tail. He reached out his hand and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of the fathers, their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said, Now put your hand into your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. And he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. Behold, it was restored like the other flesh. The Egyptians were scrupulously clean, particularly their priests. Priests would shave their bodies to be scrupulously clean. And there was nothing so loathsome and foul a disease as leprosy. It disfigured men. It clung to their bodies and ate at them and destroyed them and separated families and homes. And God says, look, put your hand in again. Bring it out. And he looked at his skin. It was like a baby's skin, completely clean. Leprosy in the Bible is a symbol of sin. And that's why you don't hear about lepers being healed. They're cleansed. And sin is loathsome to God. And sin destroys lives, individually and family lives, doesn't it? It's horrible. And God sees it as something horrible and loathsome. But God can cleanse sin. God can take the sin away. God can change a man. He can change a woman. And he did that throughout Scripture. And he's doing it today, this very day. He's doing it with people's lives. Then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed your message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it out on the dry land and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. The very first plague that God brought against Egypt is turning the Nile into blood. We'll come to that tonight, God willing. So that would be a mighty sign because the Egyptians, the Nile was their God. It was their life blood for the whole nation. So God's going to turn it into blood for them. So there's a, a little sign. Then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent. You think after those three signs, I mean, you think that you'd be convinced, wouldn't you? Surely you'd be convinced. But you can see Moses trying every way to get out of this, isn't he? Then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, Lord, you know I'm, I'm really not a public speaker. Now, Lord, you know that. You know I'm not really very good at speaking. I'm, I'm kind of slow. 
you know, I've got this speech problem, and I really, I really don't like to, to, to project myself. <laughs> Sometimes when God calls somebody, particularly if it's public ministry, Sometimes that's their first thought, Lord, how in the world could I do that? How could I get up there in front of people and speak? You know, and most people, when they get up to speak publicly, particularly at the start, they're very, very nervous. I remember the very first, first time I was asked to preach. It was a Wednesday morning. It was a ladies' meeting. And uh, I worked hard on that message. And I... And I just as I got up to preach, in walked an American preacher. We didn't know he was coming. He arrived in the airport, got a taxi, just arrived into the church, walked right up the middle aisle, sat in the front seat, sat looking up at me. I thought, Lord, this is not right. I, I felt like just walking off the platform and just walking away. And I went from Genesis to Revelation about five minutes. I had no idea what I said. I was just utterly a bottle of nerves. Him sitting, critiquing me at the front seat. It was awful. It was embarrassing. But God hadn't finished with me. God's the God of a second chance and a third, a fourth, a fifth chance. And I need every one of them, let me tell you. And so he says, I'm not very eloquent. So the Lord said to him, Who has made this? Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute and the deaf and the seeing and the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Moses, I made you. You know, with all your faults, with all your inadequacies, with all your failures, with all your feelings of I can't do this and all that, and I can't speak, I made you, I can make you do this. I'll be with your mouth. I'll show you what to say. <laughs> I mean, this, this would be funny if it wasn't so serious. Verse 13. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. After all that, Moses said, Lord, I tell you what, just get somebody else. But whoever else you can find, Lord, just send them. I, I, I'm not cut out for this. You know, I tried this, Lord, before. When I was in my prime, do you remember when I was in my prime? Remember whenever I killed out of jail? I tried all this before, and it didn't work. Surely it can't work. I'm 80 years old. Send somebody else, please, Lord. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. You know, the Lord is very, very patient with us. He really is. He perseveres. But there comes a time when God draws a line and says, listen, no more excuses. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? And I know that he can speak well. And look, and I love this, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. Ah, didn't know that. Moses must have thought, really? I haven't heard of we We haven't met in years. At least 40 years since we've met. But you see, God was working both ends of the line. God knows everything. And he knew Moses would get to this point. He says, it's okay, Moses. No more excuses. I have got your brother to come, and he'll speak on your behalf. 
the fact he's on his way. So at some point, Aaron must have been walking about, hadn't seen his brother in 40 years, and he must have been thinking, you know what, it's a long time since I saw my brother Moses. I think I should go and find him. Probably had no idea why. I just feel that I should find my brother. But you see, God put it in his heart to do this. To fulfill your destiny, to fulfill your role in God, to fulfill your call, God will bring somebody, if you need them and you will, alongside to help you. When Sally and I started this work here 40 years ago, we had nobody. Nobody. The first Saturday night, the opening night, when the keys was handed over to us, and I have pictures of it, 20th of October, 1979, Saturday night. The place was Bunged. It was the other way around, by the way, from this. It was completely and utterly bunged. The church from Belfast came up. People from all over came. It was bunged. It was a great night. We had band. We had a choir. We had everything. Keys was handed over to us. We came down the next day. Not one single person said, we'll come with you. Not one. We walked through that door. And we had nobody. Nobody to play instruments. Nobody to give a hymn book out. Nobody to lead worship. We had old hard chairs. I mean, 15 minutes on them, your backside was aching. We had a Hammond organ. Remember that? We had a Hammond organ sitting in that corner with nobody to play it. That's all we had. That's how we started. With nobody. And then after a while, Clifford Nevin came. You need some help. Yeah, love some help. Great. We're here to help you. We're coming. We're going to be with you. And then a guy called Martin with a guitar, acoustic guitar, it was all we had. He came. Twin brothers came, the Lapland brothers, they came along. <coughs> and whenever they worked shifts, one of them was on the shift, then only one of them came. Sometimes our congregation was half, there was only one of them came. <laughs> but we were really glad they came. They probably thought they were gonna come and get a, get a girl like, but there was nobody here. <laughs> uh, we're single, you know, they're looking for, whatever talent was out there, but there was no talent here at that time, sure weren't boys. He's thinking there's probably not much here still. That's what I don't want to think. <laughs> and then just started from there. That's how it began. God knew we needed help, and we didn't have any. But we started. God says, go. We went, we started. And today, look what we've got. Look at the people. Look at different groups and different people and different worship leaders and blah, blah, blah. Just on it goes. Because God is good, isn't he? Raymond and Joyce came. Kenneth and I came. These, <laughs> I remember the day, I'm, I'm way over my time here. I remember the day, away in the 90s, when Clifford Nevelyn, Raymond and Joyce, Kenneth and I, Sally and me, down in a coffee shop in Lisburn beside the bank. I went in there and had our coffee and a scone because we're going to go next door at a set time and we're going to sign on the dotted line for this building. And we had to sign on the dotted line and if this went pear-shaped, then we were up the creek without a paddle. No denomination, nobody to step in, just us to be the trustees. Did God honor that? Yes. Absolutely, he honored that. But we had to take that step of faith. So God brings... So God says, Moses... Aaron, your brother's on his way. It's going to be all right. 
he'll speak for you. Look, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a life for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do signs. Just a rod. But it became known as the rod of God. And there was nothing magical or supernatural about that rod per se. It was just because God said, you use that rod. When I tell you, you hold that rod out and then I'll do the work. Sometimes whenever we look at ourselves, we wonder, what have I got to offer God? God says, what's in your hand? Give it to me. May not be much. You mightn't think it's much. People mightn't think it's much. But give it to me, and I'll use it. Old F.V. Meyer, that old great old preacher of old, he says, when God wants an implement for his service, he does not choose a golden scepter, but a shepherd's crook. He chooses the weakest and meanest thing he can find, a ram's horn, a cake of barley bread, an ox goad, an earthen jar, a shepherd's sling, a rod with God is mightier than the vastest armies. <laughs> and so he went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. Notice here he didn't tell him about the burning bush. Hmm. He just says, I just want to go and just check out my brother, see if they're still okay. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons, set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in your hand, but I will harden his heart that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Then verse 24 to 26 is a little unusual. Something happens on the way to Egypt. His wife, his two sons, and Moses. The commentators are a little bit divided on because when you read it, God was saying to Moses, I'm going to kill you. Or was he meaning Moses' son? Why did he say that? Because Moses had not circumcised his son yet. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And every Hebrew male had to be circumcised to be obedient to the covenant. And Moses was going to a covenant people. And he's going to tell them that God sent me to deliver you. And he was going to go with his sons. The first thing they would want to know because he came from Midian is, are they circumcised? Paul had this problem in the New Testament, one of his young men. Are they circumcised? So what's he going to say? Going to say no? Then his credibility is gone. 
totally gone. So he summoned half to be circumcised. Why did he not do it before this? Well, if you read the story there, quite graphic story, if you read that story, you'll see that Zipporah, his wife, didn't seem to want it to happen, didn't seem to be in agreement. In fact, she actually did it. And she called him a bloody man. You are a bloody man to me. You're a bloody bridegroom to me, actually, was the exact words. And it seemed to be at that point that she and her two sons went back to Jethro, her father, and Moses went on his own. Of course, depending what age the boy was when he got circumcised, it's quite a painful thing if you're older, as you can imagine, so maybe he couldn't go on anyway. But in Exodus 18, whenever Moses actually starts to come back to land, then Jethro, whenever they had the great victory, Jethro brings Zipporah and their sons to Moses, and they're reconciled again. So it's kind of an odd thing. But what God has sent to Moses, Moses, you've got to do everything right. This is the sign of the covenant, and you're not doing it, and here's something you should be doing, and you're not going to go any farther until you do this. In fact, it was so serious, God says, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. Commentators think he's maybe talking about the son, but it looks like he's talking to Moses. I'll kill you if you don't do this. Some things are so serious with God that we have to do, and if we don't do them, it's not our peril if we don't do it. So he says, you have to do it, and he did it. And then he went on his way. We're through here in just one second. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went to meet him on the mountain and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord who had sent him, told him the words of, all, of the Lord who had sent him, and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did the signs, those three signs, you know, the snake, the leprosy, the water being poured out his blood. He did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and they worshipped. <clears throat> Glory to God. Now, God willing tonight, the big showdown with Pharaoh He's called of God. He's anointed by God. There's going to be signs and wonders he's going to do. He's got Aaron along with him. The people are behind him. What can go wrong? Plenty can go wrong. And did. It didn't just happen the way you thought it was going to happen. And sometimes when we step out to do God's work and do God's will, you think, I'm anointed, God's called me, I've got help, nothing can go wrong, bang, something does go wrong. You think, what happened? What happened there? I didn't expect that to happen. Well, this is what happened to Moses. But let's see how God deals with that. And remember this challenge, this fight, this battle that's ahead with Pharaoh. It's not just between Moses and Pharaoh. It's not just between these two men. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God that pulling down our strongholds. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And so it's not just a battle between Pharaoh and Moses. It's a battle between God and the gods of Egypt, the gods of this world, and the God of this world. And God is going to show the whole world that he is mightier and greater than all the gods of this world Hallelujah. and the God of this world, which is Satan himself. Amen. So we'll look at that tonight.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.